When I'm having a good hair day, that's when I'm my best self. I feel good. I look great. And I will say, painting sulfate-free rose water collection is a part of that. The Rose Water Collection. It feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rose water because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric here to let you know that my podcast, Next Question with me, Katie Couric, is back for its second season. I'll be diving into some big issues like this country's devastating maternal mortality rate, the rise of astrology, and a little thing called the presidential election. Listen to Next Question. It comes out every Thursday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. And welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And I am surprised we haven't done this podcast sooner, Caroline. Indeed. Because we're talking about none other than Susan B. Anthony. That's right. One of the mothers of the women's rights movement. Um, what's interesting reading about Susan B. Anthony is just how incredibly single-minded she was. I mean, she was a uh, an advocate, an, e- an evangelist for, for women's rights, but kind of pretty much at the expense of every other social movement that was happening in her day. Yeah, I feel like when we hear about Susan B. Anthony, it's in very broad terms of she's this amazing figure in women's history, but we aren't offered many of the details. Right. And there are so many fascinating details. And we're talking about her this time of year in particular because her birthday was February 15th. She was born in 1820 in Adams, Massachusetts, and she never married, never had kids. And I mean, I don't understand how she would have had kids because how she even had time to do all of the things that she did astounds me. Because not only was she an advocate for women's rights and voting rights, she was also an advocate for reform in labor, education, voting, dress, marriage, divorce, everything. Yeah. And, you know, talking about her being single minded, Kristen and I have talked about dress reform on the podcast before and women wearing pants and so on and so forth. And good old Susan B. actually gave it a shot. She she tried to wear reform dress for a while. But the negativity, the the abuse that she endured for for wearing these new fangled clothes, she was like, screw this. Everybody's seeing my clothes and not hearing my message. So Susan B. Anthony, of all people, gave up on dress reform because she was like, no, you are going to hear what I have to say about women's rights. Yeah. And because of that single-minded determination, she also clashed with other feminists or suffragists of the day, especially one woman named Lily Blake, who was highly instrumental in organizing the suffrage movement in pushing for women's rights to vote. But you probably haven't heard the name Lily Blake because the thing about uh, the history of women's suffrage in the United States is that Susan B. Anthony made a lot of it, yes, but she also wrote it, too. Yeah, and so she was basically like a PR master, Susan B. Anthony was. Uh, I mean, she wrote, you know, History of Women's Suffrage that kind of presented it all as one seamless 
integrated, smooth movement, uh, you know, that just carried all women as one with it. And that's not really the case. Yeah. I mean, as a study that we found in the Canadian Review of American Studies points out, because Susan B. Anthony was so masterful and effective at sort of controlling this narrative of that 19th century women's movement, that you the contributions of women like Lily Blake, Lucy Stone, uh, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, and others were sort of minimized to the point of not really being included at all. Yeah, and there were a lot of women, even her very close partner in crime, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, a lot of women who were thinking like, well, no, I, I also want to advocate for other social movements. I want African-Americans to have the right to vote. I want them to be on equal footing. I want African-American men and women to be equal with white men and women. But Susan B. Anthony was was just not having it to the point where she did not even agree with the passage of the 15th Amendment because it did not support women's right to vote. But let's not get ahead of ourselves because there right. is a lot to talk about. But let's first talk about where Susan B. Anthony came from, because she has interesting roots. So she, she was born, as I mentioned, in 1820 to Quaker abolitionists. So the, abolition was very much in her blood. Right. And they would have all sorts of anti-slavery uh, friends and family coming over uh, to gather at her parents' farm. Even people like Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison came by for these discussions. Yeah, and the first thing that she did when she grew up was become a teacher. And that was really when she started becoming active with advocating for reform because it was through teaching in the late 1840s and into the 1850s that she started advocating for things like co-education, uh, equal education opportunities regardless of people's race, uh, better pay for female teachers. Yeah, and she argued that all schools, colleges, and universities should open their doors to women and previously enslaved African Americans. And during this time, in the 1840s and 50s, while she was head of the girls' department at a school, she joined the Daughters of Temperance, which was a group that tried to draw attention to the effects of drunkenness on families and campaign for stronger liquor laws. And in 1848, she actually delivered her first public speech for them. But as we'll see, even though she was heavily involved with them, she kind of wasn't into that movement wholeheartedly either. Yeah, and it's in 1851 that Amelia Bloomer, who, speaking of dress reform, mm -hmm. Amelia Bloomer of Bloomer's fame, introduces Susan B. Anthony to Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And those two, like you said, they become essentially partners in crime in a way of organizing the suffrage movement and uh, protesting against uh, men who wouldn't allow them to speak. And they really join up forces to promote the women's movement and abolition and temperance for a little while, at least. Right. And in 1852, Anthony attends her first women's rights convention in Syracuse, the famous uh, meeting in Syracuse. But uh, things don't go so well. Uh, moving down the road in 1853, uh, Susan B. Anthony was refused the right to speak at the state convention of the Sons of Temperance in Albany. So she and buddy Elizabeth Cady Stanton founded the Women's State Temperance Society, the first temperance group organized by and for women. Because she's like, OK, uh, hello, women are part of this movement, too. We're a big part of this movement and you're not even going to let us speak. OK, we'll go over here and start our own group. Yeah. And I feel like that formation of the Women's State 
State Temperance Society, that rebellion and movement away from the Sons of Temperance is one of those first really significant milestones of the suffrage movement. And it's it's kind of that activism that starts to really fuel this movement for getting women the right to vote. And at the same time, too, she's also heavily involved in the abolition movement. For instance, in 1856, she becomes an agent for the American Anti-Slavery Society. And with that, she starts to encounter the first real public opposition to her and her her activism. Uh, For instance, she ended up being hanged in effigy and her image was dragged through the streets. Things were thrown at her. Not everybody was happy about SBA supporting abolition, but that certainly didn't discourage her from uh, supporting the cause of abolishing slavery and having equal rights for African-American citizens. Uh, For instance, in 1863, she, along with Elizabeth Cady Stanton, organized the Women's National Loyal League, which petitioned for the 13th Amendment. And as this anti-slavery movement is happening, we also, at the same time, have progress being made in terms of women's rights as well, at least on the state level. Right. In 1860, uh, with the weight of Susan B. Anthony behind it, the New York Married Women's Property Bill was enacted, which allowed married women to own property, keep their own wages and have child custody. And it actually became a model for women's property laws in other states. And this... Uh, this social movement, the social success, preceded in 1868 uh, the publication of The Revolution, which was a newspaper that Anthony published with Stanton. And the masthead of the publication said, men, their rights and nothing more. Women, their rights and nothing less. Yeah. And so what you see throughout the 1860s is Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton really splitting their time between abolition work, labor reform, Women's rights, um, for instance, on the labor front, they were in New York advocating for eight-hour workdays and equal pay for equal work, which, okay, the State of the Union was very recent, and President Obama was saying equal pay for equal work. We're still talking about that, um, but pretty revolutionary for the time to be, be saying that in 1868, and Anthony was encouraging women who were working in sewing and printing in New York to form their own unions because at the time they were barred from men's unions. Right. And men, men were not really too pleased with her involvement as a delegate to the National Labor Conference in 1868. She persuaded the Committee on Female Labor to call for votes for women uh, and equal pay for equal work. But the men at this conference deleted her reference to the vote. Yeah. What jerks. Yeah. Um, but after the Civil War and by the end of the 1860s, we really see this shift and that real emergence of the single mindedness of Susan B. Anthony with that sole focus toward suffrage, because after the Civil War, she essentially shifts from the anti-slavery movement after the 14th and 15th Amendments granted equal rights to African-Americans and voting rights to all citizens, regardless of race, but not, as some politicians had promised her, not regardless of sex. So women still couldn't vote. 
Right. So she, at this point, along with a lot of other suffragists, were kind of throwing their hands up in the air saying, seriously, like, we worked for all of this. And um, at this point in 1869, you have the suffrage movement splitting, going one way with Anthony and Stanton's National Women's Suffrage Association gunning for an amendment for women to vote. And then you have the American Women's Suffrage Association taking a state-by-state strategy. And basically, Anthony and Stanton's group was considered a radical organization that did not support the 15th Amendment on the ground, on the grounds that it enfranchised black men, but not white or black women. Then you have the the more moderate AWSA formed by Lucy Stone and Julia Ward Howe. It was basically like, let's let's try to just make some gradual movements. Let's, you know, not try to tackle everything all at once. Let's get this amendment passed so that uh, black men can vote and then we'll we'll have our day. And Anthony's like, nah. well, because around that time you have Wyoming becoming the first territory to grant women the right to vote. And you have movement in places like New York, where you are at least having like piecemeal rights being granted to women, like with that married women's property bill. And what came to mind when I was reading about this was uh, arguments over um, how best to advocate for gay rights, because at first, some have said that for gay marriage, at least the best is to have a nationwide amendment. But really what's been happening now is more of obviously the state by state mm-hmm. approach. And then finally, with one fell swoop, you have a national amendment. And Stanton's and Anthony's National Women's Suffrage Association has been painted as this radical group. But this is also where uh, uncomfortable issues about women's rights versus enfranchisement for black people first comes up because... The fact of the matter is, in the process of splitting away and really pushing for this nationwide amendment and being so outraged over the passage of the 15th Amendment, which granted black men and exclusively black men, not women, the vote, Stanton and Anthony did accept funding from uh, some outright racist um, politicians who were similarly opposed to enfranchisement, but for very different reasons. And by different, I mean racist. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. And this is um, back in 1867 when suffrage for both women and blacks failed in Kansas. Anthony and Stanton basically aligned themselves with the openly racist leaders of the Kansas Democratic Party who opposed enfranchising black voters. And these tactics, this is coming from the National Women's History Museum, Such tactics set the stage for uh, Stanton's assertions that women merited the vote more than did freed slaves and recent immigrants. So it's I mean, it's not all entirely a clean and clear and pure movement. But speaking of it not being a clean, clear cut movement, I mean, we we also don't hear very much in the, the history of women's rights in the United States about how suffrage underwent this major rift that was largely due to that passage of the 15th Amendment. And we need to remember that in addition to, yes, the important work that Susan B. Anthony and, and Katie Stanton were doing, you still have Lucy Stone, Henry Blackwell, and Julia Ward Howe with their American Women's Suffrage Association who are supporting the 15th Amendment and also pushing for women's rights. And uh, the National Women's History Museum mentions how historian Rosalind Turberg Penn argues that black women at the time were more drawn to the AWSA 
than Susan B. Anthony's NWSA because the AWSA supported the enfranchisement of black men. Now, if you talk to, you know, if you, if you dig into issues of voting rights for black women as well, I mean, you do have Sojourner Truth in 1867 similarly saying, you know, she, the ain't I a woman, like, I feel as if I have as much of a right as a man. There were, there were also, I mean, they were also having to come to terms with the fact that still they couldn't vote. Right. But it's difficult to think about being opposed to the 15th Amendment. You know? Well, I mean, I think Anthony was so I can't I cannot I'm not speaking for Susan B. Anthony. Let me preface that. But um, I mean, she was I almost think that she was so single minded, as we've said, that it's like anything. Anything, uh, you know, would would have been seen as standing in the way of women's right to vote. I mean, she herself, Susan B. Anthony said, I will cut off this right arm of mine before I will ever work or demand the ballot for the Negro and not the woman. Yeah. I mean, and and the fact of the matter is, too, this in, in the late 1800s, this is not a time of perfect, you know, race relations right. by any stretch. In the United States, there was a lot of segregation that would continue within the suffrage movement where you have Mary Church Terrell uh, as president of, for instance, the National Association of Colored Women that were sort of organizing in their own way for rights. But there would be larger events that would happen where some white suffrage groups would ask for black suffrage groups to say stay separate to not march next to right. them to not integrate which is so unfortunate to think about but it's something that that definitely happened and that we have to acknowledge absolutely so we were just talking about you know all of the divisions that are in this movement that the women's suffrage movement was by no means one smooth monolithic event that happened during this period. And we want to get into some more of what Susan B. Anthony was up to in this era. For instance, you know, getting arrested. Yeah. Um, But first, we are going to take a quick break. Okay. So a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident. But that same study also revealed that 95% of women don't feel great about their hair. I can definitely relate to the confidence part because... If my hair is doing something a little weird, something I don't want it to do, then I I can't stop thinking about it the rest of the day. Oh my God, we've all been there. Pantene's rose water collection feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rose water because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. Your hair doesn't look really great. Thank you. I actually worked in a place for a while that was very sensitive environmentally and we weren't allowed to use shampoos that had sulfate in them. So that's something that I look for these days. And bonus, I love the way that my hair looks now. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. This episode is brought to you by NBC's Good Girls. Okay, the new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz. Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman have never been more hilarious as America's favorite moms turned gangsters, Beth, Ruby, and Annie. Already this season, there have been some big twists and breathtaking surprises. The fans love it, and the critics do, too. Variety calls good girls addictive and audacious. Entertainment Weekly says it's just what you need, and Rotten Tomatoes certifies good girls 100% fresh. 
So if you've missed any of the new season, get yourself online and stream it now. And Sundays on NBC, watch it live. There's sure to be big twists and huge surprises. So you'll want to enjoy your Good Girls experience in a spoiler-free zone. The all-new, all-hilarious season of Good Girls, Sundays on NBC and stream anytime. And now, back to the podcast. So we've established that there was a major rift that happened within the suffrage movement surrounding the 15th Amendment and the enfranchisement of black men and sort of black women, but not really, because at the time still women didn't have the vote. And that was the one thing that mattered to Susan B. Anthony by this time in the early 1860s was that women couldn't vote. And she was going to do everything that she could to change that including getting arrested. Right. In 1872, uh, Susan B. Anthony was arrested along with 12 other women, including three of her sisters. That's a very good supportive family. Uh, when she went to Rochester to cast a ballot. But the thing is, some really weird stuff happened. It wasn't as cut and dry as woman goes to vote, woman gets arrested for voting, woman goes home with a slap on the wrist. No, she actually ran into a lot of angry people along the way. So it's a little screwy, though, what happened, because Anthony essentially argued to election inspectors that by virtue of the 14th Amendment, women had the right to vote in federal elections. It was just not necessarily a a state by state right. And so finally, probably just to shut her up, the inspectors gave in and registered Anthony and her sisters and the other women. And so on November 5th, they go and they cast their ballots. But then November 18th, it takes a while for this to happen. A U.S. deputy marshal shows up at Anthony's house and arrests her for voting illegally. And Anthony probably wanted this to happen, I would say, because she wanted this to travel all the way up to the Supreme Court Mm -hmm. because the outcome of this case could result in what would now be the 19th Amendment. Right. And so Anthony ends up getting arraigned with other women and the election inspectors who had allowed her to vote. She refused to pay bail and applied for habeas corpus. But her lawyer paid the bill, keeping the case from the Supreme Court. So all of this stuff is happening. And she's like, no, dang it. I'm trying to do something here. And every step of the way, everyone involved was being like, no, no, no. Let's just sweep this under the rug so that, you know, you don't get to vote ever. Well, and the judge in the case even instructed the all-male jury to go ahead and give a, a guilty verdict. It was pointless for them to be there, which legal scholars now you know, say, oh, right. my God, that would never happen today. That's horrendously illegal. But the judge was just like, oh, my God, no. OK, just it's going to be a guilty verdict. Right. It's be guilty. And he fined her one hundred dollars and made her pay courtroom fees. But when she didn't pay, he didn't imprison her, therefore denying her the chance to appeal. But I love this, though. Uh, there is a letter that Anthony wrote to Elizabeth Cady Stanton after she cast her vote, before all of this stuff started happening. And she wrote, well, I have been and gone and done it. (laughs) She was clearly really proud of what had happened because she thought all of this, you know, this ripple effect was going to happen, granting women the right to vote and how frustrating that must have been for her. Even though in the as far as the national conversation regarding women's suffrage, it did have an impact because she became depicted as the woman who dared. There was this uh, political cartoon of her um, showing that, you know, she was this 
pioneer who was going to vote no matter what. And it got people talking. It it really did. And, and she was not at any point ready to give up. I mean, this is a woman who went before Congress every year from 1869 to 1906 to ask for pass- passage of a suffrage amendment. I mean, she was committed. And in 1877, she managed to gather petitions from 26 states with 10,000 signatures, but Congress wasn't hearing about it. So 10 years later, not an easy 10 years, but 10 years later in 1887, the previously separate suffrage organizations, NWSA and AWSA, merged into the National American Woman Suffrage Association with Stanton as president and Susan B. Anthony as VP. And I can only assume, reading all that I read about uh, Susan B. Anthony's personality, I can only imagine that she was sort of like, I'm going to make you president. Like, I have a feeling she wouldn't stand to be VP if she didn't want to be VP. Yeah, no. And and she really did rule (laughs) with an iron fist. She didn't take very kindly to other women who wanted to be as outspoken as she was. I think she really uh, enjoyed being the figurehead of this movement. There were even times when she belittled the work of Elizabeth Cady Stanton because it wasn't specifically in line with her vision for how the women's rights movement should go. Right. And she disagreed a lot with Lily Blake, who we mentioned earlier, who was kind of trying to say, listen, Susan, Suze, Suze, babe, hey, These petitions aren't maybe the most effective and efficient use of our resources, but, you know, Susan B. Anthony had a mission and a vision, and she was going to accomplish things the way she wanted to accomplish them. And really, no matter the good work that women like Lily Blake accomplished, she she didn't care. Well, and the thing about it is, too, she did to women like Lily Blake and others who she simply did not want to hear from at conventions she did to them the same that was done to her and Katie Stanton at that men's temperance convention so long ago when they were refused the right to speak. Mm-hmm. I mean, she wouldn't I don't think she outright wouldn't let Lily Blake speak, but she kept her time so short. Right. It was almost pointless for her to go up there. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's I guess in order to be such a powerful leader at that time. You kind of had to be that ruthless, maybe. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think that her memory has been whitewashed as just sort of some trailblazing saint for women, whereas she was she was not always a friend to all women. Right. Exactly. And, and I mean, I think you'd be hard pressed to find any social movement whose leaders are purely 100 percent, you know, clear of conscience all the time. But, you know, I think it's interesting to delve into this. Uh, she did, you know, eventually take over as president of the NAWSA after Katie Stanton. Um, and during the 1890s, we're kind of on the downslope of her career as she's, as she's getting older. She kept that focus on education. I mean, you know, talk about a single-minded focus. Maybe when she felt more comfortable, she yeah. put a little bit more focus back into education. She did uh, serve on the board of trustees of uh, Rochester's State Industrial School, um, campaigning for co-educational and equal treatment and opportunities for boys and girls. She did raise also $50,000 in pledges to ensure the admittance of women to the University of Rochester, which is amazing. And this whole time, she's working on the history of women's suffrage, the book, 
co-authored by her and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Matilda Jocelyn Gage, who I feel like must have felt like a total third wheel <laughs> because you, you really never hear her name mentioned. Um, but this was the publication of this book in 1902 was significant because it sort of cemented the fact that history would always look upon her. This was this was her writing the historical record of her leadership, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and not to say that she didn't do so much, um, but it is uh, it, it is kind of um, it's it, it's telling that she certainly wanted to write that book and to be that heavily involved with its authorship. Um, but even outside of the United States, for instance, in 1904, she presided over the International Council of Women in Berlin and became an honorary president of Carrie Chapman Catt's International Women's Suffrage Alliance. So even during her time, obviously by contemporaries, she was recognized as the woman. Right. And I, I think I do want to say I think it's interesting that, you know, she she did work so hard to gloss over the rifts in the suffrage movement, because, I mean, think about today when people talk about women catfighting and infighting and, oh, well, women are always women can't be friends with each other. Women can't trust each other. All of that stuff. I think in her own way, in her own time, Susan B. Anthony was trying to be like, look, we've got this. Yeah, it's OK. We are not fighting. We are all working together for the same purpose. Granted, she might not have gone about it in the most delicate way, but I think in her own way, she was trying to make it seem like the strongest possible movement. Well, and what's so startling, too, when you read about these sometimes glossed over details about the women's rights movement, this early suffrage movement, these first feminist is that a lot of the issues and the infighting that you hear about in terms of inclusivity, racial diversity, intersectionality, to toss out a word that Susan B. Anthony, I'm sure, never used, it's all the same thing. Mm-hmm. We're still having these same conversations. Why is that? Why can't? Why? 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 I just want to know that. Follow-up podcast. Why? <laughs> because it's like history continues to repeat itself in different ways, whether it's through um, a book about the history of women's suffrage or on Twitter, you know? Right. I mean, I, I think you have women across the ages who are trying to break out on their own and get what they see as the rightful end to their efforts. Yeah. You know, whatever that rightful end may be, you know, obviously Susan B. Anthony was not campaigning for everyone's rights. Yeah. She was campaigning for what she found to be the most important. And it wasn't until after her death, she died in 1906, it wasn't until 14 years later that the 19th Amendment, known as the Susan B. Anthony Amendment, was ratified. Yeah, which... And I mean, that's, of course, you know, going back to the fact that there were so many other women involved and it was named after Susan B. Anthony. But it is like, you know, this woman just you know, spent every moment of her life living and breathing this and then to not see it come to fruition. You know, that's, you know, well, think about the only time she ever voted was in 1872 Mm -hmm. when she was subsequently arrested. Right. That's got to be that's it's incredible to think about. But also, (laughs) I'm not and I'm not trying to diss on SBA, but even though the amendment is called the Susan B. Anthony Amendment, Elizabeth Cady Stanton wrote it, you know, it's just yet again. I mean, but hey, she she was the figurehead for better or worse. Yeah. I mean, eventually, I guess 
for better. But what is um, what is concerning, though, these days is how Susan B. Anthony's legacy has been co-opted by more conservative groups. Um, she's been used as a figurehead of sorts for anti-abortion groups, actually, for some people who say, oh, well, you know what? Susan B. Anthony today would not stand for the same platforms as, you know, self-described feminists would in the 21st century. Right. And groups like Feminists for Life of America um, kind of base this notion on quotes like it's important to help bring about a better state of things for mothers generally so their unborn little ones could not be willed away from them. Uh, they also base it on articles published in the publication The Revolution calling abortion child murder or antenatal infanticide. Um, but uh, there was a conversation that we saw with Deborah Hughes, who's the president and CEO of the Susan B. Anthony Museum. And she's saying, look, guys, you can't take a modern day discussion about anti-abortion or pro-life or pro-choice or any of these things and apply them to a woman who lived in the 19th century. Because the truth is that abortion today and abortion in the 19th century were two very different things and the conversations were different. Well, and even the perception of pregnancy was different. It wasn't until much later, until probably the fourth or fifth month of pregnancy when the so-called quickening happens when you could first feel a baby's movements that you were actually considered pregnant whereas today obviously you can know from days after conception right and so back in the day it was more an issue of the fact that abortion was what we would call now late-term abortion and it was so dangerous there were not nearly the medical advances that we have today. And so it was more an effort to protect women and their health than it was necessarily to talk about the fetus. And as far as children being willed away from families, that wasn't an abortion reference at all, really. It had to do with the fact that fathers at the time were basically able to sell their children into indentured servitude and the mother couldn't do anything about it. Yeah, I mean, women had absolutely no rights over anything, whether it be property or uh, if they were to get a divorce, there would be no question over who would get child custody. You know, they, they had nothing at the time. So that was more a conversation regarding needing more rights for women rather than outlawing abortion. Right. And Susan B. Anthony never advocated for the criminalization of abortion. Um, and that that's a topic that actually was discussed in her day. And she never hopped on that train at all single-minded again. So it is important then to, you know, keep an ear out if you hear about organizations like Feminists for Life in America or the Susan B. Anthony List, which is dedicated to getting uh, pro-life candidates elected, that they are, you know, using the Susan B. Anthony name in a way that she probably would not approve of. I mean, honestly, thinking about Susan B. Anthony, I don't think that she would want her, I mean, unless she personally approves of it, you know, mm -hmm. I don't think she would appreciate having her name or likeness used on on anything because she was a little bit of a control freak. Yeah. Zombie uh, Susan B. Anthony is going to be real upset. Yeah, this is true. OK, so a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident. But that same study also revealed that 95 percent of women don't feel great about their hair. I can definitely relate to the confidence part because 
my hair is doing something a little weird, something I don't want it to do, <laughs> then I, I can't stop thinking about it the rest of the day. Oh my God, we've all been there. Pantene's Rosewater Collection feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rosewater because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. Your hair doesn't look really great. Thank you. I actually worked in a place for a while that was very sensitive environmentally, and we weren't allowed to use shampoos that had sulfate in them, so that's something that I look for these days. And bonus, I love the way that my hair looks now. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. Here's the thing. Saving money with GEICO is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock, he constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports. So this episode has been a long time in coming, uh, and I hope it's been as enlightening for listeners as it has been for me. I know I learned a lot of stuff I didn't previously know about Susan B. Anthony. Yeah, and I really I feel like maybe we should now go and do an episode on those unsung heroines of the suffrage movement whose names have all but been lost to history, <laughs> to Susan B. Anthony's history. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So uh, let us know your thoughts, though. MomStuffAtDiscovery.com is where you can email us. You can also tweet us your thoughts at MomStuffPodcast or Facebook message us over on, well, on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you about our episode on thyroids. Well, I've got a letter here from Kelleen, and she writes, I just want to thank you for doing the show on thyroid issues, more specifically for highlighting Hashimoto's. I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's a couple years ago, but it took me five years of going to a doctor after doctor trying to convince them that I wasn't just lazy and or depressed. Finally, I found a wonderful doctor who really listened to me and thought to run the right tests, and the rest was exactly like Caroline's story. It was so amazing to hear a podcast, or anyone really, discussing how hard the struggle for diagnosis can be and what this really means for your body. Trying to get diagnosed could make me feel crazy at times, but the struggle didn't stop once I was diagnosed. I really feel like trying to manage this, trying to feel as close to normal as possible again can be so very hard at times, and so very few people understand that. I hope you are doing well, Caroline, since your diagnosis, and know that if you ever struggle with it, you are totally not alone. So thank you for bringing awareness to this topic. Hopefully more women will hear it and really push for these tests when they experience these symptoms. With gratitude, Kelleen. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad that our conversation uh, struck a chord with people. Um, I I wish I had heard a podcast about thyroids myself. Um, and I have a message here from Lauren talking about her own thyroid experiences. She says, I just wanted to thank you for the podcast. If only you had done it six and a half months earlier. She says that her story is much like mine, and about a year and a half ago at age 27, I went to go see my primary care physician because I was extremely tired and pretty depressed. 
At the time, I thought I may have been anemic. I never even considered thyroid issues. My doctor ran some basic blood work and included a screening of my TSH levels. The results showed that my TSH was quite elevated, more than 75 when the normal range is 0.4 to 4. And my doctor diagnosed me with hypothyroidism. I was prescribed 88 micrograms of levothyroxine, and I thought I was in the clear. Looking back, I probably had Hashimoto's as well for quite some time prior to being diagnosed. Fast forward about a year to about seven months ago, and I went in for my yearly physical. I mentioned to my doctor that my husband and I were going to try to get pregnant, and she never mentioned any issues that pregnancy could have on my thyroid and hormone levels or vice versa. She only told me to continue taking my medicine. Well, my husband and I were successful at getting pregnant fairly quickly. At my first prenatal checkup at nine weeks pregnant, my basic blood work showed that my TSH levels were once again out of whack at over 14. After doing some research, I found that my thyroid levels really should have been managed into a narrower range pre-pregnancy and that my medicine should have been adjusted as soon as I found out I was pregnant. I also read the numerous studies that showed the effects of my hypothyroidism on my unborn child. As a woman in her first trimester, I was already so hormonal and to find out that my chances of losing the baby were higher than other women and that my baby could have learning and developmental issues was absolutely horrific. Luckily, I am now under the care of an endocrinologist who is monitoring my thyroid issues much more closely. Once my husband and I got over the shock of the bad news, we started to joke that if our daughter has developmental issues, we will just give her a mama's thyroid issues bell curve. Yeah, still not funny, but it's helping us to cope. Anyway, I hope your podcast has reached some women so they will be better informed and not have to go through what I did. And then she wished me good luck with my thyroid issues, which I really appreciate, Lauren. Thank you for writing in and telling us your story. And thanks to everyone who's written in to share your stories with us. MomStuffDiscovery.com is where you can send your letters. And to find all of our other social media links, as well as every single podcast, blog post, and video, you need to head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. So here's something that some of you might find shocking. 95% of women don't feel good about their hair. But Pantene is changing that. Pantene's rosewater collection combats bad hair days with an innovative formula that uses rosewater derived from the petals and buds of the Rosa Gallica plant. With Pantene's Rosewater Collection, I can really feel how much more hydrated my hair is. And it's sulfate, paraben, dye, and mineral oil-free, which makes me feel good because who needs all those additives? Experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. This episode is brought to you by NBC's Good Girls. The new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz. Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman are hilarious as America's favorite moms turned criminals. This show is the perfect blend of comedy, action, and romance. No wonder critics call Good Girls your next TV addiction. And Rotten Tomatoes rates it 100% fresh. Ooh, Good Girls, Sundays on NBC. The new season has already had some wild twists, so watch live. And stream anytime.